Great to see you. Happy you are here. Glad, glad you're with us this morning. A um, little kind of fun, fun fact about myself. Um, most of my friends think that I know nothing about sports, but in fact, I grew up in a family that did sports all the time. Like, I played most of them, uh, went to stadiums all around the country. Like, I really, like, I know sports. Like, I watched it all the time with my dad. And so now when I hang out with friends and football's on, they're like, Matt, this is first down. That means they have three more times to try to get to this yellow line. I'm like, I know, I just don't care. And... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's pretty funny. Anyway, so I just, it's it's just one of those little kind of fun facts. And but part of the reason I you know I know about sports is because my dad has this great passion for sports. And and so we would drive around. Uh, I'd, I'd kind of hang out with him a lot. He had a job for like 20 years that enabled me to kind of hang out with him after school and um, while he was working. And so he'd listen to baseball all the time. And and sports commentators. You know, they have kind of a, a really interesting job. They have to figure out what is the most significant thing to talk about, right? Because we all know, like, way more is going on visually than what they actually say verbally, and so they pick out the most significant things to say. And, and so maybe as a parent, you've noticed that your role has shifted from, like, a person who just kind of does whatever they want in life to now you have to be a commentator on every attitude and behavior, right? And so you have to highlight what is most significant. Like, hey, you know, it's okay to be sad, but you can't punch your brother in the face or like what right this is you're adding commentary to their behavior to try to draw out the significance of their choices you know it's like oh um, by the way we can't repeat everything everybody else does right you're adding commentary trying to point out the significance and we affirm qualities we hope that will continue they'll continue to choose like I love your creativity or way to help your sister out buddy um, and what we do is we engage in parental commentary right for at least 18 years of life and then depending some of you like right, keep adding, and um, hopefully that scales down to a certain extent as your kids get older. But what we do with our commentary is we choose to make things significant, and what we make significant in our home is really a revelation of what we value. Right? What we make significant is uh, shows us what we value, and we live in a society that has running commentary all the time on everything. Have you noticed? And so everything is made to seem significant, right? It's like everything, every experience is supposed to be amazing. Everything is supposed to be awesome all the time, which just means nothing is awesome. Uh, nothing is significant. So we're forced every day to kind of sort through what is of true and lasting significance. And this morning, as we continue our In Our Midst series, we're going through the Gospel of Luke, looking at how God comes into our midst. What we're going to do is we're going to come face to face with the reality that claims ultimate significance in our lives. Um, so turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 1, verse 67. Luke chapter 1, verse 67. As you're turning there, I'll catch you up on the story so far. If you're visiting with us or if you, if you missed a couple Sundays, what's happening so far in the story Luke is telling is that there's this old couple named Zechariah and Elizabeth, and they have not been able to have any babies. Right? And so, uh, God sends an angel and says, you're going to have a baby, you need to call him John, he's going to be somebody who points the way, prepares the way for my coming in your midst. And so... Um, God's gracious, which is, by the way, what John's name means, and he gives this baby, and he's, come, and he's coming to point the way to God's re- coming redemption. And the crowd around Zechariah and Elizabeth know something special is happening. God's on the move. We're, we're paying attention to that. And so they ask a question, and they say, what then will this child be? Like, what's up with this kid? Right? Like, what does it all mean? Good question to ask. Right? What does this mean? And so... Um, in other words, I want to know, what's the significance of this? Because the text says that they saw that the Lord's hand was, on, uh, was with him, was with John. And so they said, what does this all mean? And so in response to their question, the dad, Zechariah, had some commentary. Except it's not just any commentary, it's a song. It's full-on musical. Right? And so Zechariah puts on a production he, or, or maybe it's just slam poetry, I don't know, but it's, it's, a, it's a song, it's a poem. And he, he answers their question with a song called the Benedictus, which is the Latin term for the word here that we translate in English, bless, blessed be, right? or praise be. 
Right? So it's a blessing, a, prayer, a praise. That's, that's what this song is. So let's take a look at the musical commentary of Zechariah on his moment with his son. Zechariah, or not Zechariah, Luke 1, 67. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke in the mouth, uh, by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So, there's a great, great song. We actually don't know the tune. You can imagine what tune you might set the Benedictus to. Um, but uh, he, he erupts in a song full of imagery that might be difficult for us to understand. We're going to unpack that in a minute. But oftentimes in the Bible, you'll, have, you'll be reading through a narrative, which is story. And in the middle of story, or at the beginning or end of the story, there's a poem. And the poem is there to help kind of help the reader understand the emotions that they should be feeling as they're reading the story. It's, it's, a, it's kind of this tool that the author uses to help put pieces together, to weave themes together, and to grab our attention. It's, the true, it's true in any musical, too. Have you ever noticed that? Like, if you go to a musical, there's action on the stage between characters, but when they sing a song, they're really telling you how to feel about the action, aren't they? This is the same for the Benedictus, right? The, the action of Luke 1... 1 through 67, is leading to this point where Zechariah is drawing us into this moment to understand how to feel about what's happening, about the events surrounding the birth of Jesus. And so this morning, we're, we're, we're going to look at four realities that Zechariah draws our attention to. And by the way, he hasn't been able to talk for like nine months. Right? And if you haven't said anything for a long time, when you choose to speak, what you have to say is very significant, right? I don't know what you might choose to say if you haven't spoken for nine months, but this is what Zechariah has to say, and it's very significant. So four significant realities for us today in Zechariah's song. I'm sure he meant for it to be broken into four points. I'm just kidding. Um, teasing myself. All right, let's, let's begin with the first thing. Zechariah highlights the significance of what God says. He says, verse 67, Zechariah filled with the Holy Spirit. So this is spirit-inspired commentary. And prophecy, and he says this Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, and he has spoken as he has spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Remember, Zechariah is answering a question What's going on with this kid? What's this child going to be? And so he responds by taking a song that he knows. From the Old Testament. Does anybody know where he gets his first words for the, his song? Anybody know where these come? Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel. Anybody know where that one comes from? I'll give you a clue. I think it might... Oh, it's not on the screen. Which is, okay. Ha-ha. Ha-ha. Anybody? Where did this come from? If you get it wrong, I'll just say, let's try again. I won't make you feel bad. Psalms. It's a good guess. And you're right. Um, yeah. So, in fact... The, the Psalms are, 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 are divided into five books, right? And, and the, the middle three books all end with this line, Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, which is actually a really remarkable thing. Um, and every single one of them is, a, so Psalm 41, 72, and 106 all end with Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel. And each one of those Psalms points forward to a day when God will deliver his people. It points forward to an anointed king that is yet to come. And who wrote the Psalms, by the way? Or a lot of them. 
David, all right, good. All right, you guys are doing so much better than the 9 a.m. They were really struggling to engage. All right, so, wh- so when you see them at the next all-church thing, you can just kind of be like, I know, I'm better, it's okay. Um, don't do that. Uh, and then David, who, who is the author of these psalms, also re- says the same thing, actually not in 1 Kings 8.48, but 1.48. Uh, uh, it says this, Blessed be Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Israel, who, he says this, has granted someone to sit on my throne this day, my own eyes seeing it. You see, earlier in David's life, some, God had made a promise that one day there would be a king who would rule from his throne, that he would always have someone on his throne and who would rule forever, that Yahweh was promising a king. And David seized him actually fulfilling what he was going to do, at least in part. And so he erupts in this praise to God for keeping his word. And so Zechariah reaches back and he finds the most appropriate song to sing when God keeps his word. Right? A reference to 1 Kings 1, 48. And then three of the messianic psalms at the end of each of the books. And so how is it that God has kept his word? It says that he has visited and redeemed his people. Which, by the way, these are the themes for Christmas. You notice that. Like, Matthew 1 calls Jesus Emmanuel, which means God with us. The whole point of the, the incarnation, the coming of Christ, is God among us, God with us. And so he's visited, which has the meaning of coming to bless, coming to help, coming to rescue. It can mean, like in uh, uh, Psalm, I think, 80. One, uh, coming to judge, but most of the time it has to do with coming to bless. Um, and redemption is about what? Purchasing back that which is lost and estranged. And, and this is like what happens in Ex- Exodus 4. People respond to God with worship because they realize he's seen their affliction and he's visited them. He's come to help them and bring them out of slavery. So that's the backdrop for the word Zechariah is using, for the song he's singing. The imagery is God keeps his promise. And he's come to help. And more specifically, he's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. So, once again, he, Zechariah is adding clarity to his moment. He's, he's running commentary, brings significance into what's happening. A, a horn in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 33 and Daniel 7, is a symbol of strength. It, it, the picture is a bull that you, you run into... Uh, out in the field and it's got these horns and if you try to mess with it, what's it going to do? It's going to mess you up, right? Because it's really strong and it has these horns that it's going to like get you, right? It's, it can defend itself and it can, it's a, it's a strong animal and so what David does later in his life in 2 Samuel 22 and Psalm 18, the same thing, is he puts this imagery of strength and pairs it with what God promises, Salvation, And he says this in 2 Samuel 22, The Lord, Yahweh, is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence and I will call upon Yahweh who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. Saved from my enemies. And so what this idea is, is that that the horn of salvation is a strong source of rescue. It's a, it's a, it's a rescuer who's, who's got strength to deliver people from their enemies. And, and in Zechariah's own day, the people around him would have been hoping for salvation from enemies, very concrete enemies. The Roman army was stationed in their place of worship. And it was this idea that, man, we are oppressed by a people who don't worship our God, who don't believe what we believe, who, who hate us, basically. And what many people in Zechariah's own day were hoping for is that God would save them from sinners. Right? But Matthew 1 says that Jesus needs to be called Jesus, the angel says, right, because he will save the people from their sins, right? Not from sinners, but from their sins, right? And so oftentimes we expect God to be a strong rescuer to deliver us from sinners. But the strength of his salvation is that he comes in his first coming in Jesus to deliver us from our sins. So often we look outside and we say, God, change my circumstances. And he says, I want to change your existence, right? I don't want to just take you out 
of what's bad. I want to take what's bad out of you. I want to do a work in you. Eventually, right, what God wants to do is he wants to save sinners, right? Not save us from sinners. Because we ourselves are sinners. More on that in a minute. So Zechariah's song points to this very important detail that all of this wonderful Old Testament imagery is in fact what God spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. God has been saying all along that he would do what he's now doing in Zechariah's life. But of course not all that he said he would do. His promise is, is being kept in part and it tells us that he'll do it in full. All right? And so often we get messed up when we think that God actually is keeping or has kept all of his promises, and we start blaming him for not doing things that he has not yet done. Or we put words in his mouth, and we think that he's promised us things that he hasn't. Like, you're going to be happy and healthy and successful. These are not things that God has promised. Like, go check on his promises before you start blaming him for not keeping them. But the, 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 the central vision of the promise is this, of what the mouth of the prophets have spoken. Get this. He says mouth. Is that singular or plural? Singular. Of his prophets. Is that singular or plural? Prophets. So is he bad at grammar? No. He's saying the mouth of his prophets is the, the whole voice of the Old Testament and all of its diverse voices are saying one unified thing about the Messiah. There's one coherent vision of what's coming. God is speaking a unified message about the Messiah through the prophets throughout all the ages. This means that the Messiah's coming wasn't an accident. This means that it wasn't something like a fad for God, but the heart of God from the beginning and he's keeping his word. And by the way, um, those of you who are kind of tracking with Luke and you're wanting to know kind of how Luke puts his message together, this is pretty interesting. He, he says at the beginning that he's putting an orderly account together, so uh, grabbing eyewitness testimony and putting it together in a package so that we can have confidence in his message. And he's writing largely to non-Jewish people. And yet he spends four chapters mostly hanging out in the Old Testament. Interesting, right? Like, who's he writing to? Is he confused? See, the reality is, in his world, the older it was, the more valid it was. In our world, the newer it is, the more valid it is, right? So, if it's not new, like, don't, don't waste my time, right? We want the newest, coolest next. In their world, a, a, a religious notion, if it was new, was something to kind of look at skeptically, Really, what you wanted to establish the credibility of what you were saying is to root it in something ancient. And so what Luke is trying to help his readers understand is this new thing that's happening in Jesus is actually a very old thing that's been going on since the time of the prophets and before. And so it actually brings some weight to his message for his readers. And then he says at the beginning of this poem in a very wonderful way, God keeps his promises and his promises have been around for a long time. So let's pause for a second. Is that significant to you that God keeps his promises? Is that, yeah, yes, it should matter, correct? Um, it, d- does it matter at all if God is the kind of God who keeps his word? Yes, why? Because you can trust him. Right? He, he's not done working yet. He has more to do. But he's, he has actually done what he said he would do. And he'll do more. See, faith at its core is taking God's word... Uh, or taking God at his word, right? Faith at his course. I'm going to take you at your word, and then I'm going to order my life accordingly. And so the reason we can live by faith, right? And it's not a, a senseless thing to live by faith. It's because God actually has the character of integrity and faithfulness, and we can actually trust him to do what he says. Um, so God, this keeper of his word, we realized will do so in the rest of Luke, you'll find out that he does so at extreme cost to himself, to his son who dies on the cross, to, to show us in, actually how committed he is to his promise. And if he keeps a promise like that, with that magnitude and at that cost, how much more will he follow through for you and for me on the things we need so badly from him? Will he not take care of us and follow through on his promise? Yeah. 
You see, the significance of what God says is so vital because he actually does what he says. He keeps his word. A quick application point for us is this. Genesis tells us that people, humans, are made in God's image, which is which means that we're actually meant to like look like God, act like God, and reflect God in our world. And, and so that means that we are never more like God than when we are making and keeping promises. And in fact, we're actually never less like God than when we are making and breaking promises. So to, to be fully human means to be a faithful person, someone who resembles God by word-keeping. Let's be that kind of people. Next thing, Zechariah continues to sing about the very thing God will do. Let's look at the significance of what God does. Verse 71, uh, he says that he's, he promised all this so that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath that he swore to our father Abraham and to, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. So what, what's the result of God keeping his promise? Like, so what? Like, why did he raise this horn of salvation, this strong source of rescue? Verse 71 says that we should, so that we should be saved from our enemies, from the hand of those who hate us. And this is a line that is kind of interesting, right? Because what we find in the gospel is that, like I said, God came to save sinners, not save us from sinners in his first coming. Right? He wants to come and make enemies friends through the gospel. Right? That's part of how he actually delivers us from all who hate us. He begins to transform the world, doesn't he? So he actually takes enemies and be, they, they become friends. And that's the point of Ephesians chapter 2, by the way, in case you didn't catch that last spring. The dividing wall of hostility is torn down. Why? Through the body and blood of Jesus. Really, again, remarkable. He's made peace through him. But if we're understanding the idea of enemy biblically, it goes back a really long way. If you go back to Genesis chapter 3, again, the, the second poem, the first poem, is when man sees his wife for the first time. It's like, woman, whoa! Right? The second time, there's a poem in the Bible, is when God is making a promise. And, and so, uh, sin has entered the world. God then promises a future day where the offspring of the woman Eve uh, would actually crush the head of this, this serpent, this deceiving character that's led, the, led people into sin. And it's through this figure who crushes the head of the serpent that the world will actually be set to rights. And, and so Zechariah expresses this desire for the Messiah to deliver his people from their most potent enemy, which is a spiritual enemy. Ultimately, the arrival of the Messiah will mean that God defeats the power that stands behind the powers that oppress. And so this is why he doesn't come to root out Romans but to transform them into a new family. And this is why in Jesus' ministry, we constantly see him driving out evil spirits, healing people. It's because he's, these miracles aren't there to say, hey, look, I'm God. They're there to say, this is a sign pointing to what the kingdom life looks like. That, that when God sets the world to rights once and for all, there won't be demonic oppression. There won't be sickness. Right? And so the kingdom arrives and Jesus is, is giving these signposts of the kingdom because sin and death and the devil are the ultimate enemies. And we, we often think that people are the problem, but in reality, the problem of people is the powers of evil that grip our hearts. Paul actually calls death the final enemy to be defeated in 1 Corinthians 15. In Ephesians 6, Paul says our battle isn't against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of darkness. And when God keeps his word, what he does is he defeats enemies. He defeats sin by forgiving it. He removes guilt and shame as having the last word in your life. He, he removes the power of death through the resurrection says, actually, death will be swallowed up by life because of what my son has done. He, he, rem he removes the authority of the ultimate enemy, the devil, over your life because you belong to Jesus the Messiah. And he has, he's Lord and has authority. And so this happens actually at the cross. So this is looking forward to what will happen. 
But the defeat of enemies isn't really the, the final picture. There's, there's a bigger picture that Zechariah is pointing us to. See, what God does is significant because he doesn't just defeat enemies. He did something else. It says, to show mercy, promise to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. So he's tying together what's happened for David and for Abraham into this one coherent storyline. And at the heart of God's world-writing plan is his choice to call a people and a person to himself. See, what, what happens? What's this oath, this covenant? Does anybody know where we find this, this oath to Abraham? Like, what, what's that about? Genesis, good guess. Yes, you're on the right track. Zero in a little bit closer. What part of Genesis? There's 50 chapters there. 12, amen. Is it on the screen? Oh, okay, no. All right. Yeah, Genesis chapter 12. Again, like one of the most important parts of your Bible. All right. This oath to Abraham is that through him there will be a people, a family, Israel, and through that family will come a person, this offspring, the one who would like step on that snake's head. Yeah, that person. <laughs> They'd come, and a result of what God's doing with Abraham is that all the nations on earth would be blessed. So God calls Abraham apart, has his covenant, this oath with him, and he says, I'm going to bless you so that you will have an awesome life custom-tailored to everything that you want. Like a golden toilet in your house. Right? Like some, that's how good... No. He said, I'm going to bless you to be a blessing to the nations. Remarkable, right? And this will happen through his people and through the person that comes through his people. Okay. So this great mercy of God extends to bless the world. And Zechariah, singing his slam poetry song, is saying, Look, folks, the significance of this moment is that this is the age where God is doing that world-writing, nations-blessing work. And then Zechariah says something we cannot overlook. He says this. He tells us the goal of God's, God's rescue his salvation. It says, to grant us, verse 7, end of 73, beginning of 74, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. So why are we de- de- delivered from sin and death and the devil? Why, why does God do this? That clearly, so that we can go to heaven when we die, right? Like that's, that is the goal. Right? Get you out and get you in. No, 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 no. Actually, by the way, can we just like Bible moment here for a second? There's not, I I dare you to find a place in the Bible where it says you're saved to get into heaven. It's interesting. Americans are fascinated with who's in heaven and getting into heaven. Because the Bible never once says that's the goal. For all the hours of teaching that we're exposed to, as many translations in English of the Bible that we have, you would think we might pay a little bit more attention to the fact that the Bible never says the end goal is to get you into heaven. In fact, the entire story ends with heaven coming to earth. I almost said Kevin coming to earth. We don't know. Like, who's Kevin and why is he coming? So heaven actually comes here, right? Heaven's temporary. The end goal is a restored creation so getting into heaven not the goal of our salvation there's not one place in the bible where it says that's the point in fact second peter 1 3 through 4 is this great great line his divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises see there's that again So that through them you may become partakers in the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. If you've escaped the corruption and you're not in heaven yet, where does that leave you? Here. With what goal? To become partakers in the life of God. That's the goal. Transformation, not like departure. Transformation is the goal. All right. Anyways, we'll keep going. Um, what? So he delivers us from sin, death, and the devil so we can feel better about ourselves. Have great self-esteem. No, okay? So that we can look down on other people who don't believe like we do. 
hope, no, we keep missing this, don't we? All right. So that we can learn how to stop being such bad sinners. Now, what's the point? It says this, being delivered from the hand of our enemies that we might serve him without fear. God delivers, he rescues so that we can serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. That is interesting. It's remarkable, actually. The significance of what God does, according to Zechariah, as he points our attention to it, is that God rescues us to serve him. He rescues us to partner with him in his kingdom work. That is the goal. Obviously, this involves transformation, but it involves coming alongside God. We don't serve God to become saved. This is not about earning. Let's be clear about that. Do I need to say that again? Did you catch that? We do not serve God to become saved. This is not about earning. But we are saved by God to serve Him. This does involve effort. Okay? To rob from Dallas Willard there for a moment. See, God blesses us to be a blessing, which, by the way, is incredibly tiring but very fulfilling work. Remember, this is all Abrahamic stuff. I'm blessing you to be a blessing. And this word for service, by the way, it kind of connotes this idea of like taking a slice, maybe an hour, maybe 10% of your time, energy, and money, and giving that to God, right? No, actually, it doesn't at all. What this word means is your total life service given to God, right? This idea for serve has to do with the whole scope of our life. So we're to partner with God with our whole life. This isn't a thing for a day a week. Or it's, uh, it's not just a one-off service project. God's deliverance actually enables us to serve God with our whole lives without fear. And that without fear thing is pretty exciting, isn't it? We're not doing it because we're afraid of God, like he's going to get me if I don't serve. This isn't servile fear. It's not I'm afraid of what might happen to me. Or people might get me from God. God knows that fear is not a great motivation, ultimately, for loyalty. That fear doesn't motivate passionate service for ministry. He motivates us with his kindness and his grace. One of the best illustrations of this is, again, rewind in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. You might not know this scene, so I'll paint it for you. Isaiah is this prophet, and he has a vision of God. He's on the throne, and the place that God's in is shaking, and Isaiah's shaking, and... There's angels or seraphim or what? They're like angelic beings and they've got a whole lot of wings and they're singing a song repeatedly. Anybody know what the song is? Holy, 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 right? Again, the only time in the Bible you get thrice holy. And you've got this thrice holy God being praised, shaking the place. And what is, what is Isaiah's posture? He's on his face, right? Isaiah, good guy or bad guy? Good guy or bad guy? We think so, but what does he say? He says, bad guy. Woe to me! Right? I'm a man of unclean lips. Unclean people. I'm unclean. He's on his face before God, right? And so often we, we kind of like, we stop the story there and we think that should be our posture before God. Like, don't, don't move. Don't, just don't do anything wrong. Woe to me. And you know what? Woe to me is an appropriate moment. When there's sin in our life that's unconfessed and undealt with. And that's where Isaiah is at. But what does God do? He atones for his sin. He brings his coal off the altar, foreshadowing the time when the Son of God would go to the altar to make atonement for sin, to clean that which is defiled, to remove shame and guilt. So Isaiah experiences this atonement before God. So does he stay like this? No, what's he doing next? God's looking for a messenger. He's like, I got a message. I got to get it out to our people. Who's going to go for me? And Isaiah's like, I will. I'll do it. Right? And he's jumping up and down. His hands raised. And his posture is what? Walking with God. Because that's the appropriate posture for people whose sin is atoned for. To walk with God. To partner with God in his kingdom work. This is huge for us, by the way. So, rather than groveling... God calls us to stand up, walk, and partner with him. A few years ago when I got, um, when the iPad 1 came out, it was a pretty exciting moment for us Apple people, right? 
Anybody else pretty stoked when the iPad 1 came out? Yeah. Still got it? It's running pretty slow. I'm kind of afraid that this app's going to quit on me in the middle of the sermon. But, like, maybe time for a new one. Anyway, uh, when it first came out, like, my whole family went, on, went in on it together. And, like, got me this iPad, and I, I was having fun using it and all this stuff. And I was at a meeting one time where... Uh, a, fr- a friend from Intel was there, and Intel puts chips in these bad boys. And I had a pen and paper, and I was writing on top of my iPad because it was providing a very, very nice flat surface for me. And my friend goes, as an in- Intel employee, I just got to say how much I appreciate your utilization of this iPad right now. You know, like, very sarcastic. So, as if to say, like, in other words, like, that's not really how that thing's meant to be used, right? Like, that's really not all that's for. Like, there's so much more you have in your hands than a flat surface to write on. And in fact, there are apps for that, right? Have you heard of a stylus? Right? So, it's fascinating. Like, there's more to it than that. Isn't that so often our relationship with the Lord? Isn't that so often our relationship to our own salvation? Where God's like, you know, it's probably not the best use your time, your energy, your passion, your money. There's so much more to you. There's an app for that. It's called the Holy Spirit. Right? He's in you to indwell you, to empower you, to live out the divine life. Right? Character of God. And so we underplay our role as partners with God in this world writing, nation's blessing, kingdom work. And salvation then becomes wasted on us when we actually fail to serve God with our whole lives. It's like we, we accept salvation as fire insurance and then we go, I'm going to burn down the building. Fire insurance is free. I don't have to do anything. And then we can just kind of flame it all down. And God says, no, this is a waste of your life. I want you to partner with me. Are you partnered with God anywhere in your life this morning, friends? Is there a place of partnership? I, I, I don't mean like an official ministry even necessarily. But are you partnering with him in the things he's about? Because that's what gives our lives significance, by the way. When, when our lives, what we're about, merges with what God's about. His eternal purpose is of blessing the world through his son. And it doesn't happen by accident. It takes in great intentionality, by the way. And I think there's two ways you can go about it. You can be very organized, right? You can have an organized partnership with God where you say, every Wednesday I'm showing up at 7 p.m. and I'm loving on high school kids and being a disciple maker there. Or I'm going to be a teacher with our kids because, man, our church should never have to like bang its head against the wall to find teachers for our kids. Gosh, we love them. We want to see the next generation grow up and know Christ and make an impact for his kingdom. And, or, or it also happens in more organic ways, right? Where you, you actually, you watch where your passion meets the world's need and you're just aware and you're listening to the Spirit guide you into relationships and places where he can use you to pour out his love. And I want to just say, too, real quick, that there are times where we feel like we have to join a ministry because it's the featured ministry of the church and it's not really our gifting. And the end result is that we don't enjoy it and we drop out and we conclude that serving him is a waste of our time and it's a drag. But in reality, we need to find out what we're good at and what we enjoy doing, and it requires some work. Which means that you might not know what you love until you've tried a few things. But what if we were the kind of church that was always trying to find our service fit? We're always trying, and sometimes it even changes. You know, man, I've been in children's ministry forever, but my heart is breaking for this justice issue, and I just want to help come alongside uh, 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 people who are coming out of trafficking, or whatever that might be for you. Pay attention to the work of the Spirit, because He's called you out of sin and death for what purpose? To serve Him, to partner with Him, and it's awesome. Okay, this is good. Uh, And if you don't know, by the way, if you're like, I have no clue where to begin, just come find me. I'll help you out. Don't know. And by the way, like any of our pastors, like we would love to help you find your fit. And um, that might be something that's not yet created. And we won't try to force you into what we're excited about. We're just going to hear your story and try to discern with you where God's calling you to serve. All right. 
This is so important to Zechariah that he actually considers the goal of God's rescue plan serving him, to partner with him, but not just to serve him, but to do it with a certain kind of character. Notice how he qualifies it in holiness. That's devotion to God. Right? That's about being solely devoted to God and his honor and what we do. And righteousness is about right relations in every direction. I'm a right relationship with God, others, self, and creation. There are relationships of justice where we live out the character of God. This is the way in which we're meant to serve him. I hope you're serving him today. I hope you're listening for the way in which the Spirit might be guiding you into more full partnership with him at home, at work, in the church, in your neighborhood. And by the way, you're never confused, right? You don't ever have to wonder if you're partnering with God. Are you serving God with your whole life? Well, I don't know. Like you know, and here's how you know. You know people that you're intentionally loving. You know ministries that you're passionately serving. You know places that you are intentionally leaving better than you found them. You know, names come to mind, faces, places. One more, th- right, well, two more things. And the next thing, who, who then are the ones who God uses significantly? Look at verse 36, where we see the significance of who God uses. He says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. This is a very short but very important point. Get this. When we talk about... Um, uh, our dreams for our kids. Who, who's our focal point? Like our kids, right? Like their skills, their passions, the things they're like great in. But where does Zechariah focus? He's just, I mean, he hasn't talked for nine months. He's just got a son. And who's he talking about? He's talking about John's relationship to Jesus, right? The significance of John in Zechariah's mind is the same as every other person God uses. It's their relationship with Jesus. This is the significance of who God uses. We're often tempted to find our significance in what we can achieve or what we've done or what people say about us, how people feel about us. But at the end of the day, Scripture is pointing us to the reality that the significance of who God uses is their relationship for Jesus. It's that they love Him, that they point the way to Him. You might be limited in your own mind of your significance. You think, oh, I failed miserably in my life. Is that the point of your significance? No, it's your love for the Savior. That's the point of your significance in ministry. And John's significance is this, that he gives knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of sins. Gosh, is that something you could do? Absolutely. Absolutely. I love this, the end of John's gospel, where Peter has blown it significantly in his life. Remember this? He's like denied Jesus in public a few times. (laughs) Literally, three. And Jesus comes and finds him and has breakfast with him and says, Peter, do you, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I do. Okay, then feed my sheep. Right? This is a, a figure of speech for take care of my people. Like serve my church. Serve, serve my, the people that I love. Three times this happens. Do you love me? Yes, feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. The emphasis, the motivation, the focus of our serving God, what we have to bring to the table? It's our affection for Jesus. Because when you focus there, when you look to Him, when you're, when you're motivated by who Jesus is, you're actually able to serve. Right? Because otherwise, when we look to other things, our motivation to serve Him dries up. But He says, no, focus on loving me, and you'll, you'll have the energy, and you'll have the ability and the motivation to serve me in all things. Because we see him who gave his life to serve us. And you just can't help but be transformed by that, by being motivated by that. Finally, last thing, we can see uh, why it is that Zechariah focuses on Jesus. Because he then talks about the significance of who God sends. Look at verse 78 with me. It says all of this is because of the tender or compassionate mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And this little tag at the end, the child grew and became strong in spirit and he hung out in the woods until it was finally ready for him to hang out with people and tell them about Jesus. Right? So Zechariah concludes his song not focusing on his son but on God's son. 
on Jesus, who is coming, he says, from on high. And he begins his song, by the way, with God will come and visit and redeem. And now he's telling us how he'll visit and redeem. It'll be the sunrise who will visit us from on high. And sunrise is like this, this interesting word that it's not just a metaphor. It's actually it's a real person. It's a figure that will come. It's like almost like a title. The, the sunrise, too, is an interesting little word. It literally means to spring up or to sprout. And so it could be a translation of branch from like Deuteron- or Jeremiah 23 where we get this picture of the coming Messiah. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. He'll reign as king. Who's that sound like? <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> okay, you can answer me. Um, or a star, right? It can also mean like Numbers 24. I see him now, right? There's this here now, not yet. A star shall come from out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and it shall crush the forehead of Moab. What, what, who's that about? Who comes out of the tribe of, out of Jacob? Who's a star? Right, gee, there we go, thank you. All right, you guys are getting the picture. It's at the end of the sermon, but whatever. All right, and either, either, way, you, either way you look at it, this, 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 this sunrise from on high, whether it's this branch out of Jeremiah or the star out of Numbers, it's Jesus, it's the Messiah, it's the one who will come to give light for everyone, to give light to their path to God, uh, of God's peace. And, and look at the significance of, of who the sun is. Jesus comes to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. So are these the people who've gotten out of darkness? and figured it out, and gone to light? Which way is the light coming? It's to darkness. They're in darkness. They have a, they're not able to generate light. These are people who are sitting in darkness. In other words, God in His compassionate mercy is coming to the place of sin and spiritual relational darkness to shine light and healing to provide a way, a way of peace. And peace is this idea from, again, throughout all of Scripture, this harmony that is intended for humanity. Harmony with God, each other, and creation. And and when you experience darkness, how significant is light? How big of a deal is it? It's like a huge deal, right? Have you ever had this experience before where you go out, uh, you go out for the evening and and you forget to turn on your porch light? And when you come home, like, it's really really dark. Like, I did not anticipate this, even though it happens every day of my whole life. And you're surprised. You're like, dang it, I can't believe I left that thing off. And so you come, and and you're trying to get your way into your house, right? And it's like, this is heightened if you have young kids, like I do. It's like, get them all out of the van. It's cold. It's wet. It's dark. Somebody has to go to the bathroom. And you're sitting there like an idiot, just trying to like, get the key in the hole. You're like, is this the right key? I don't know. I can't tell. Right? And you're just like, is it, is it in the right way? How important is light in that moment? It's huge, because light orients us to what's real, and it gets us where we need to go. And for my son, that's to the bathroom. Right? And like, light is a big deal when you're in darkness. Light's a big deal when you're in darkness. And Jesus comes as light to orient us to what is ultimately real and true and get us to where we need to be. Not the final place of heaven, but into a family with a mission. Into relationship with God himself. Keep in mind, not even Zechariah. Okay, what kind of description do we have for Zechariah? Good guy, bad guy? Good guy, good job. All right, you were nervous. You're like, he tricked us with Isaiah. Zechariah is a good guy. Luke calls him righteous. Right? He's a righteous guy. So this is good standing. But Zechariah himself lumps, lumps himself in with those in darkness who need a guide for their feet. For, he says, for our feet. He doesn't say those people's feet. He says, for our feet. You know what this has to say about the significance of who God sends? We all need him. We all need him. You see, the point is this. We all sit in darkness to one degree or another, and we can't generate our own light. We can't get ourselves on the way to peace. This is true for the person who lives a very bad life. It's true for the person like Zechariah who leads a very good, moral, righteous life. 
the significance of the Son is that we each need Him. And, and John will point to His salvation, this message of forgiveness of sins, but Jesus will take us into the forgiveness of sins. John points us to the one who comes to give life. Jesus actually gives it full life. It's a question for you this morning as we wrap up. Do you know Jesus? Do you know His light? Where you've begun to recognize that no matter how externally good or bad you might be, we all actually sit in spiritual darkness, the darkness of sin, But the reality of who Jesus is just overwhelms us so much that the only way we can describe him is comparing him to light. And the result of knowing Jesus, by the way, is that you end up with peace. Peace because your sins are forgiven, washed, and you're reconciled. Peace because you have a new freedom to actually love people without needing something from them. You have peace because you are, you're folded into a new community that accepts you on grace and not what you have to offer. And you have peace because you have a new mission that is of ultimate significance, not just for personal gain. Because all of these are folded into the way of peace in which Jesus guides us. And you can know him today. You can say, I want to be in on that. I want that. I want to embrace him. I want to, I believe Jesus is real, that he's the one who shows God's, God keeps his word. I believe that, that I need someone outside myself to free me from myself and spiritual forces of darkness in my life. I need him to lead me into a life of significant service where I partner with him for something bigger than myself. And I want, I want to be someone who's used by him. You can, you can have that today. You can, in your own heart, reach out to God and say, I believe and I am in with Jesus. I want to go where he goes. I want to follow him. Maybe you know him and you need to renew your own source of significance this morning. You need to renew what is really significant in your life today. Right? And you can do it here at the tables as we come to communion where you can set aside the significance of self, of accomplishments. You say, I, look, my significance isn't in my job. My significance isn't in the performance of my kids. This, my significance isn't in what I have or don't have or where I've failed or where I've succeeded. My significance is in the light who comes to those in darkness and guides me in a way of peace. That I, I'm with him and I want to partner with him. So we come to the tables this morning to symbolically take in the gospel to nourish us and this meal that claims us that we belong to Christ because of his life and death and resurrection and exaltation and he sent his spirit to empower us for new life. So come and take the bread and cup as a way of remembering where your significance is and whose you are this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you come to the place of sin to visit, to redeem, that you pull us out of darkness, that you deliver us not only from our enemies, but you turn enemies into friends through the gospel, and you also, Lord, call us to serve you. Lord, as we come to the table, would you just renew in us the source of our significance, your life in us through your spirit. We pray as we go from here too, we would live a life fellowship with you and partnership with you for your glory and for your kingdom's sake. Amen.